When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Russia's war in Ukraine exposed some major problems in global energy markets this year, making the transition to renewables that much more important. But in this interview with Kyle Bass and Will Van Lowe, the CEO of one of the world's largest traditional and alternative energy investors, he makes the case that we're nowhere close to achieving net zero emissions. Will is one of Kyle's most trusted energy advisors, and he argues that this transition is of the utmost importance, and if we get it wrong, the consequences will be dire. This is going to be one of the most heavily anticipated talks, I believe, uh, in the next few years. Uh, I'm here with Will Van Lowe. He's one of my closest friends and someone that the Real Vision audience probably hasn't met yet. Um, Will is the CEO and founder of, of Quantum Energy. Will, tell us a little bit about Quantum Energy, how long you've been investing in the energy markets, and what Quantum does both on the alternative side of energy, wind and solar, as well as hydrocarbons. So Kyle, we are uh, we're private equity funds where we got our start in energy, primarily upstream 25 years ago. Mm -hmm. um, over these 25 years, we've on the on the traditional energy side, oil and gas. We've grown to be one of the the largest uh, developers of oil and gas in North America. As a matter of fact, over the last kind of five to seven years, uh, quantum portfolio companies have been in the top three in aggregate, in the top three drillers in North America, changing places typically with Exxon and, and EOG. Uh, is, is one of the top three drillers in North America. Um, you know, we produce on average, uh, you know, about 700,000 barrel of oil a day equivalents. Um, and uh, on the, on the uh, more of the, the renewable side, uh, we made our first investment in renewables about 10 years ago in a wind farm. Uh, and over the last decade, we've become one of the largest, uh, we're in the top three private developers of wind and solar and battery storage in North America now. Uh, we also uh, invest globally. Uh, we're probably more global on the renewable space than we are in the traditional energy space. Uh, we've got a number of large platforms in Europe, both doing onshore wind and solar, uh, as well as offshore wind. Uh, and then more recently, we've expanded into Asia and started doing, um, looking at offshore wind projects in, in Asia. So needless to say, if you aggregate what you guys are doing, you're one of the top alternative energy construction firms, if you aggregate everything you're doing in the world, and you're one of the largest hydrocarbon upstream producers of energy in the world. And I know, a disclaimer to everyone watching, I've been invested with Will as long as I've had money to invest. Uh, we actually went to college together. Uh, but knowing your firm, your firm is constantly one of the top IRR best returning firms in the world. This isn't a commercial for your firm, which is who you are. You're one of the foremost experts, in my opinion, of energy around the world in both alternative and, and uh, hydrocarbons. So I just wanted to set the stage for the questions that we're going we're gonna to go into. Uh, Will is one of the people that I seek out whenever I have deep questions about what's going on in the energy markets. And today, 
Uh, we have a lot to talk about, so we're going to get through it as quick as we possibly can to get to some of the really key issues that we want to talk about today. We could sit here probably for three or four hours talk about this, but why don't we start with a macro snapshot? So we, we sit here today at the end of May uh, 2022, and the world is, is in, is in uh, more flux than, than it's ever been in in, in our lifetimes. Uh, so let's talk about snapshot. Where is global supply today? Where's global demand for hydrocarbons? And, uh, and, then, and then how does that translate into where we are in a quick snapshot for alternative energy? Yeah. So um, we're back on a demand basis. We're back to where we were kind of pre-pandemic now on, on, on oil, right? We, we use about 100 million barrels a day globally of, of oil and, and other liquids, uh, gas over 400 BCF a day. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it's interesting because supply and demand uh, can move if, if, if one moves just a little bit, right? It, it can move commodity prices a lot. And mm -hmm. so, you know, in the last couple of years, uh, we've seen oil prices down in the low 20s. They actually went negative, obviously, for a short period of time. Um, and uh, and we've seen oil prices, you know, today they're back well over 100. You know, pretty mm -hmm. amazing move. Same thing with gas. Gas in the U.S. was, you know, below $2 just a couple of years ago. Uh, and today it's uh, $8. Uh, and then on a global scale, uh, global basis, it's it's much, much higher than that. Um, but, but the world today is in a very uh, n narrow range of, you know, we will probably use more oil and natural gas this year than we'll produce. In and that's 20, one reason. In 2022. In 2022. And that's, yeah. I think, one of the reasons you've seen prices run up as much as they have. Yeah, that concept that you're talking about, that's that tiny marginal move moves prices so much. That's, that's kind of, uh, that's prima facie evidence of a very, very, very tightly yes. uh, uh, supplied market, right. i.e., if, if, if a million, two million barrels a day can move price $20, $30, uh, then that market is, is in very, very, very tight supply. Yes. You know, historically, we've always, we've always had a pretty significant swing capacity in OPEC and America. Right. And um, what, you, what you just explained to us today is it's, it is, uh, it's on a razor's edge today. We're, we have as, as, as tight of supply-demand balance as we've, we've probably had in, in multiple decades. Yep. And, and that doesn't leave a lot of room for error. That doesn't leave a lot of room for uh, a geopolitical event taking off a few million barrels of oil supply in the Middle East yep. uh, or something like that's going on in Russia and Ukraine right now. That's exactly right. So when we get to understanding this market, just again, from the pure macro, what do you think the global decline curve is? I.e., this is a depleting resource. Mm -hmm. If we stop drilling cold turkey tomorrow, right. today we can produce, I think, about 97, 98 million barrels a day, and we're, we're, we're demanding about 100, 101. If we stop yep. cold turkey today, a year from now, how many barrels uh, a day do you think we'd be, basically daily production would go down? Right. So a lot of times people think in the U.S. about uh, shale production. It has very steep decline, right? It declines 40, 50, 60 percent in its first year of production. Yeah. But that only makes up about 12 or 13 percent of global uh, liquid yeah. supply, right? So the rest of it is traditional conventional reservoirs. And those have much shallower declines, but it's still very significant. So on average, the global decline rate is probably about seven and a half to eight percent a year. Mm -hmm. And so if you think about that, that means over the next year, the world will lose about eight million barrels a day of supply if we quit drilling. And what's even more profound, if you think about it in terms of, say, over the next, let's say the next two decades, if we quit drilling today by, say, 2040, uh, global 
supply, daily supply would fall from about 100 million barrels a day where it is today to about 30 million barrels a day. So said a different way, over the next two decades, we basically have to find 70 million barrels a day of supply if, if demand just stays flat. And said another way is that's roughly equivalent to finding seven U.S. shale revolutions in aggregate, right? You take Over that all, time frame, uh, yeah. It took us 10 years to move oil production about 10 million barrels a day in the U.S. And we got to do that seven times over. Right. Or said in a different way, find seven, seven Saudi Arabias. Seven super giants. Se- well, seven, more yeah. than super giants, multiple, se- seven right. Saudi Arabias in the next, uh, in the next, call it 20 years. I think we can agree that's not going to happen. It'd be very difficult. So... When we when we think about the world, so you're saying the decline curve is seven and a half, eight percent around the, around the globe. So call it seven and a half, eight million barrels a day of production. And then if the world, let's assume a stasis that the world grows at two percent, a little slower than it has been growing globally, and you know China doesn't invade Taiwan and the shipping shipping lanes and shipping channels don't close and all of those things. Let's just assume that there is some sort of world that c- continues to grow at two, what, what does that growth mean to the global oil markets with, with, with inelasticity of demand? Yep. So if you look at, say, pre-pandemic, we were growing somewhere between a million and a million and a half barrels a day okay. of, of demand, okay? All right. So bring that back a little bit maybe, but let's just call it a million barrels a day. Yep. And uh, what you have to appreciate is, is over the next decade, the world's going to add a lot more people and it's gonna add a lot more people to the middle class, right? Mm-hmm. And as people move up the economic ladder, they consume more energy. Mm-hmm. And so you got, you've got a lot of things kind of working um, against, if you will, uh, or, or if you will, that are gonna create more demand, not, not less demand, certainly in the short term being, say, the next seven to 10 years. Right, and, and what, what I wanna get at in, in this discussion is you have hydrocarbon demand, you have, you have whatever demand can be satisfied by the alternatives, by wind and solar, and then electric vehicles. But what we're going to really tear apart today is try to understand what needs to go into all of those industries to actually make all of this work. And, and I think you and I have talked a lot offline about uh, there seems to be a pretty significant chasm between where the world thinks it can be by 2030 and the reality of life right. and, and um, how, that, how that chasm uh, widens over time. It's been widening, and, and that's why we're sitting here talking today. Um, all those incremental barrels, let's, let's also assume we find them. Let's assume we find 9 million barrels a day of production in the next year, because we're going to have to do that. Let's just assume that we can. Um, the way that's, the way that's the world's operating today is, is there's an extreme shortage of distillates, right? There's a shortage, uh, on both our East coast and our West coast, um, of diesel and jet fuel. And it's because we export a lot of that. Where are, is there going to be the investment necessary to create new refineries to refine the new oil that we need to find to produce the distillates to keep our world running as we transfer to alternative energy? How do we how do we make sure that those actual refineries are built or invested in? Uh, we have not built a, a new refinery in the U.S. in over 30 years, and um, I don't, to, to my knowledge, there's not any uh, on the drawing board right now. And I think the big reason is these are each each refinery represents a, a multi multi billion dollar investment. It takes years to construct it. Um, what's the effective life of a refinery? Um, well, a long time. I mean, 50s, thirty years? No, longer than that. I mean, there's refineries that have been operating for sixty, seventy years. Yep. 
Um, and so when a company thinks about making an investment in, in a refinery, they're thinking about, uh, are we gonna get a return on that investment? You know, those, the returns come over long periods of time. Mm-hmm. Um, and with all the rhetoric out there, you know, the kind of the anti-oil and gas rhetoric, I think uh, a, a lot of boards and, and CEOs of companies are, are very reticent to, to, to allocate the capital to that. Yeah. Um, now there's, there is meaningful investment globally, you know, China and India and, and Middle East are investing very heavily, you know, in, in refinery uh, capacity. Um, but in, in the near term, the world's short and mm-hmm. we're sh- short. And so as, as you mentioned, uh, one of the reasons we're having these shortages and, and certain types of, of, of distillates and, and other products, refined products is, um, the, they're getting bit away to, yeah. to other countries that where, where prices are much higher. Yeah, and you, we talk about the ubiquity of oil, and oil is such a fungible, ubiquitous commodity around the world. But you know, the distillates uh, have to be shipped everywhere, and LNG is not as uh, right. ubiquitous as, right. as oil is. And you see these huge price gaps between, let's say, domestic and domestically in the U.S. and and in other markets. And what we're seeing today. Um, I don't know if we, we haven't discussed this yet, but, you know, there's some North African countries that are actually out of jet fuel today. Mm. Uh, uh, and it's because, A, their reserves, uh, their dollar reserves or their FX reserves are so low, and B, it's the developed world, which is wealthier, is outbidding them for sure. cargoes, right? right? So um, as this happens, it's going to be more difficult, more difficult for the emerging markets to, let's just say, uh, keep up. Right. with the developed markets because we're going to have to pay whatever it costs to get these uh, cargoes of distillates in. Um, you know, that investment in refineries is really important. You talked about it being a 50, 60-year asset and boards and companies being reluctant to make mm-hmm. those investments because of the rhetoric. But really, it's this, it's this ESG push where we're trying to decarbonize by certain dates and that is being driven by let's just say NGOs and well-meaning teenagers uh, that really want to see this thing flip a switch uh, and and happen really quickly. We're going to get into the transition policy, but those two things are incongruent with one another, right? Mm -hmm. We really need finding capacity. We really need to find more oil. And there's a group of people out there that want no more drilling. They want no more oil. They want no more pipelines. And I think that's why we veered off the the track of uh, being a secure nation, uh, and having a secure world, mm-hmm. uh, we've just moved too quickly. Right. Right. Um, how, how do, uh, um, when you think about CapEx of the majors, and we talk about this, the money available to either build a refinery or expand into upstream, uh, um, you know, additional production and, and finding um, hydrocarbons, how much CapEx is in the majors today and how much CapEx is in, is in private equity? Well, um, and compare it to I, yeah, I, maybe I, where it was five, six years ago. So I, let's let's first of all think about how much capital does the world need to spend to replace the oil and gas production it produced in the prior year. Okay, yeah. so pre two thousand fourteen, it was spending about seven hundred plus or minus billion dollars a year. When prices collapsed into that late two thousand fourteen, that number started plummeting, and over the last five years or so, it's averaged about three hundred to three hundred fifty billion mm-hmm. a year globally. So down about fifty percent. Okay, mm-hmm. um, and that's important because you got to appreciate that while shales are relatively just in time, meaning we can say, "Hey, let's go turn, let's go increase production in the shales." And we can do that in a year or two's time period, pretty meaningfully, mm-hmm. because it's more just in time type inventory. 
But again, that's only 12, 13% of the world's supply. The rest of the world's supply comes from these large, large projects, either you know offshore deep water or in very inhospitable places around the world. And these projects take six to eight years to bring on. Okay. Mm -hmm. And that's very important because we can't just flip the switch. You know, the underinvestment we've been doing for the last, you know, seven, six or seven years hasn't shown up yet in supply. It starts showing up this year and will show up even more next year and more the following year. That's just very important to keep in mind because you ask the question, how much capital is out there to invest, right? Well, first of all, you got to remember the the public oil and gas companies have been told don't reinvest in production. Send money back to shareholders through share buybacks or dividends. And so it took a number of years for that being repeated in the boardrooms and you know by the by the investor base to finally we're now I don't know of a public company that doesn't embrace that wholeheartedly. So mm-hmm. everybody, you know, you watch the news and you you see CEOs being asked, well, why don't you drill more? Well, it's because we were told not to. We were told to send, send the money home. Um, the public companies today, whether it's Exxon or BP or Pioneer or, you know, EOG, those companies have so much cash flow that they don't need to access the capital markets probably ever again, as long as oil say over 60 and gas is over $3. They'll never need to access the capital markets again. Mm-hmm. They have as much money as they need to, to invest in whatever capital, relatively speaking. The private, so completely different story. Today in the U.S., 51% of the rigs running are private, which is incredible because a decade ago it was about 15%. Is that right? So, so if you think about it, what's been responsible for a huge part of this surge in production has been private companies. Yeah. If you go back three or four years ago, there was probably 90 to 100 billion of dry powder on the sideline with private equity funds willing to be invested in oil and gas. Today, that number is probably 15 or 20 billion. So So 90 down to 15. Yeah, 90 down to 15 to 20. Um, Huge drop. And and, and the institutional investor base globally um, is not showing a huge willingness to go back to anywhere close to where they were a few years ago. In right? fact, some of them completely abandoned Many it. Many have, yeah. And not because your returns have been bad, because they can't invest in anything that's hydrocarbon related. It, it's actually some of, what's interesting is, and actually our returns haven't been bad, but yeah, yeah. a lot of players in the space have had really bad returns. Okay. And that and that has actually turned off a, a, a lot of, and, and, and the sector with commodity prices going up and down, and there's a lot of volatility for That's, a lot of, if they don't hedge. Like if we, they didn't hedge. If they we, didn't hedge in 2015, they were finished. Or, or if they didn't hedge in 16 or 17, 16, you got to continue. Right. When you allocate the capital, you have to hedge. That protects you from the volatility locks in your returns. But, yep. but most people don't think about the world that way, right? Mm-hmm. And so I think I think the institutions have had two things working against them. One has just been the returns actually have been pretty bad, mm-hmm. both in the public space as well as in the private space for the last seven, six or seven years. So that's caused a lot of people to leave it. Not in the last one year. Not in the last, no, a last year and a half. Not in the last half. 18 months. Right, but it's been the yeah, best, you're right. right, number one in the, in the world, I mean, or yep. in, the, in the U.S. Yeah. Um, but the second thing is clearly ESG pressure, and that is that has been growing. We probably first saw that four or five years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, but over the last couple of years, in, in particular since the last uh, presidential election, that's taken on a whole new meaning. And, yep. and I'd say there's, you know, we were getting questions when Biden won, Mm-hmm. We were getting questions from our investors of, well, how do you make investments today? How do you think about, is there any terminal value of these assets, right? Are they going to, will we be using oil and gas in five years? Mm-hmm. And, 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 and that's one of those things. It's like the people that ask that question really don't appreciate 
how the, the global energy system works, That's right? right. They, they don't appreciate the architecture right. and the long-term right. inelasticity. Of the how end. long energy transitions take? I mean, they right. take- How long eight, do they take? <laughs> well, it's, it's interesting because people talk about the energy transition, right? And really this is, the, this is the fifth energy transition we've gone through as a globe, right? Back in the 18, mid 1800s, we transitioned from wood and, and whale oil to coal. That, that's really what made the Industrial Revolution possible. Then in the early 1900s, uh, oil started being used with the invention of the automobile. And in the 1930s and early 40s, natural gas. Mm -hmm. uh, and then in the 50s and 60s, nuclear. Yeah. And, uh, and, and about 10 years ago, we started in earnest really building out global wind and solar capacity, which is the fifth energy transition. Yeah. What's ironic, Kyle, is if you look at every form of energy that we've ever used as humanity, that we use more of every form today than we've ever used mm -hmm. in absolute terms, right? Mm -hmm. Coal's market share peaked 30 years ago, but we use three and a half times more coal today globally right. than we used 30 years ago. Because the and economy is so much larger. A lot more populations have grown yep. and nations have, have prospered. Mm -hmm. And so it's a little bit of, a, of, an, of a, a misnomer to say an energy transition because a lot of people think we're going to transition away from coal, oil, and natural gas, and we're going to have 100% clean energy. If you go and look at even the most aggressive projections out there um, by 2050, maybe 35 to 40% of total energy will be supplied by renewables. Right. Maybe 35 to 40%. And that, and that will be 30 years from now. That'll be 30 years from now. Yeah. Right. And, I, and again, I think that's the gap between those that really wish it to be true right. and those that know where reality is. Mm. It's a gap so wide. It's very wide. Uh, and, it, and it's a lot, it, it, I think it's a lot due to, um, there, there's kind of a circular reference to this on a daily basis through every orifice there is to yes. be told through media, through um, NGOs and through well-meaning kids and administrations, they really want it to happen. They, yeah. You and I would love to know that that could be true tomorrow if we could right. flip a switch, but that's not the reality right. of, of life. And you mentioned your investors are, are assigning kind of zero terminal value or actually questioning terminal value. You know, on Wall Street, the analysts look at the even the midstream companies yeah. and they assign a zero terminal value to 90,000 miles of pipe. Right. You know, when in reality, the replacement cost is uh, another number. That's right. You know, way above zero. Let's get to Europe, then let's get to the transition, because we have okay. a lot to talk about, especially as we get to electric vehicles and, and wind and solar. Um, it, it, quick snapshot on Europe. We, we look today, and, and uh, the 12-month the forward on uh, LNG uh, deliveries to, to Holland is about $86. Mm-hmm. And in the U.S., natural gas is trading about eight fifty nine dollars an M. Spot. Spot. Mm -hmm. So we just talk about that gap. But even our one month Ford's nine. Yeah, okay. Right. So um, you know that gap's huge. Where is Europe today? Can they move away from Russian dependence? And who's the most dependent on Russia? Yeah. So let's break oil and, and gas apart. Okay. So uh, oil will be easier. Oil will be easier to break the dependence on Russia. Europe roughly imports about 20% of their oil okay. from Russia, about 40% of their gas. But it's very different by country. Yeah. Um, oil will be easier just for the simple reason oil is much more fungible than mm -hmm. gas is. It's easier to move around. Mm -hmm. um, you, know, you, you load it into a tanker, you move it, you offload it from a tanker, and you can transport it either by pipeline or trucks. It's very easy. Natural gas, uh, in order to, to ship it across large distance across the ocean, you have to 
liquefy. liquefy. Yeah. That requires massive infrastructure. These LNG uh, liquefaction facilities are 15, 30, 50 billion dollars, depending on the size. So per copy, yeah. Per copy. Yeah. Um, so so huge how investment. How long does it take to build those? Um, you know, the, the rule of thumb is roughly four years. Um, that's just, you know, once you get them permitted and, right. and, and all that. So, uh, you know, if you were to go under a wartime scenario, could you do it in two and a half to three probably? Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it, that's not a quick fix. So, so oil, I think Europe solves its issues over the next couple of years. That's okay. going to be a little easier. And it's just really rerouting flows, right? Europe yep. will boycott uh, uh, Russian oil, but uh, that just means Russia will sell it to another country that's not boycotting it. And um, and then that country will then sell their oil to yeah uh, to, to Europe. So and to put put that into context, we have about a hundred about what ninety seven ninety eight million barrels a day of supply. Russia's five and a half million barrels of it of, on the uh, oil side on the exports. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, on gas, very different story. Uh, you know, Europe gets roughly forty percent of its gas from from uh, from Russia, and uh, you got to you know it's, it's not as easy. You you, you can't. Just ship some gas, uh, you know, over to them on a tanker. You got to put in all this infrastructure to cool it, then to re- then to warm it back up on the other side, and then you generally have to transport it through pipeline infrastructure. It's very hard to get pipelines built today anywhere, in, you know, in the Western world. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's going to be more challenging. And I think you know what Europe will try to do be a combination of, you know, over the next four or five years, you know, securing supply from countries that have a. There's not a lot of excess LNG liquefaction capacity in the world today. And there's not a whole lot coming online. And what is, is generally spoken for, right? The, the yep. Asians have been, um, you know, bidding that uh, away for, for the last number of years. Um, so I think it'll be a combination of, of there, there, there will be some solutions that are going to take longer to develop. Um, but I also think they're going to, you know, obviously everything they can transition to wind and solar, any kind of, I think nukes, uh, nuclear energy will have a resurgence in Europe. You're already seeing, um, you know, France and Germany and the UK have all kind of backpedaled off their original stance. They took, a, you know, a year or so ago that they were going to decommission all their nukes. Um, so I think it'll be a combination of a number of things. Uh, and, and candidly, probably demand ha- is going to have to decrease. These high prices will hurt will hurt demand. So that's the other way you, you, you solve the how does it? How does this price, this price gap between the U.S. and Europe, if you can quantify it for me on just a, a power bill, on yeah. price per megawatt hour, what, what, what multiple is Europe paying right now over, over the U.S.? Six to eight times more for power imagine, than in the U.S. Imagine and, and your power gas. bill going six to eight X where it is today. Yeah. And, 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 and natural gas, you know, 10 times or more, mm-hmm. uh, you know, 10 X. Um, it's going to have a profound impact on the consumer in mm-hmm. Europe, right? It's also going to have a profound impact on industry in Europe. It's going to make, you know, you take a country like Germany, which was an, an export powerhouse globally, and every energy-intensive uh, manufacturing industry in Germany or in Europe, really, more broadly speaking, is going to have a massive competitive disadvantage to many other countries throughout the world that have, have yep. lower-cost energy. So the flip side is true for America. You know, even at even at eight or nine dollar natural gas, um, and even at you know where power prices are today, the United States has a massive competitive advantage in in in, in terms of any energy intensive industry. Yeah. It's it's just hard for people to believe that's true yeah. because we've had two and three dollar gas right for a long time. We've had what forty fifty dollar oil for since since right. uh, I guess roughly since twenty fourteen. Yep. Um, you know, um, it's hard for everyone to believe that that uh, we are at a massive competitive advantage right. to the rest of the world, but we are. Yes. With Europe's problems and Europe being one of our key allies around the world, you know, 
Putin's invasion of Ukraine has really bifurcated the world into kind of an axis of authoritarians and an mm -hmm. axis of, call it the rules-based order. Right. Um, do you think that, again, we are trying to not be political whatsoever here. We're just trying to be pragmatic in our yes. approach. Do you think that the current administration should be green lighting some projects today that could really help Europe? Well, you know, my understanding and some of the conversations we've had with some of our friends over in Europe in various governments is um, there's a lot of pressure being applied to the, you know, the Biden administration right now to, mm -hmm. you know, hey, you all have a surplus of energy. Uh, help us out, right? Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, I certainly, I, I hope that's the case. I mean, yeah. that's one of the things that the U.S. could do, I think, to meaningfully uh, increase not only our influence in the world, and particularly amongst our friends, but also um, it's what friends do for each other. I mean, that, yes. you know, the, the Europeans have been great allies for us really since World War one mm -hmm. and um, some we, of them, yeah. Well, a lot of them. <laughs> um, that's fair. Um, but but this is an opportunity for America to really um, shine and mm. and 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 you know. I think back. Thank goodness for the shell revolution, United mm. States. You know, the the U.S. and Europe took two very different tacks back in the in the late two thousands, two thousand eight nine period time, when the U.S. said we are going to secure our energy future, mm -hmm. and we are going to invest heavily in the shales. And we went from being the largest importer of oil in the world, over 13 million barrels a day at its peak. Think about that. We were transferring 250 to $300 billion a year to governments that didn't like us very much, right? Yep. And over the course of a decade, we took that to it. We're now a net exporter on oil and gas. And, and what's interesting about that is, tell us also, who is the largest energy producer in the world? I think it'll shock the audience. Well, yeah, it won't shock by, you or I. By, but, by a long by shot. By a long shot, but but the U.S. is. So we the U.S., when you put oil and gas and kind of make gas on an oil equivalent basis, we produce about 22% here in the U.S. of all the oil and gas produced globally. Russia's number two at about 15%, and there's the, Saudi's number three, and they're a far, far cry, uh, you know, they're sub 10%. Sub so a lot of people think of Saudi and as Russia the, as the big players. Right. And and really the US is is the biggest player by by a very significant margin by 50% margin over Russia. Yeah. That is that is pretty phenomenal. So when we when we get back to talking about energy transition, I just want to cover a couple of things. When when we engage as a country in energy transition, you mentioned Europe kind of took a different tact, right? right. Europe engaged in embracing ESG early. Yes. Uh, and they decided they were going to move away from fossil fuels. Um, rightfully or wrongfully so, I think morally, righteously so. Yes. Uh, but let's just say now they've realized that their plan was really bad. Uh, Price will tell you that they got it wrong um, and the struggles that they're having. Um, do we have, we as a country, we as a world have a proper energy transition plan or are we uh, just hoping that we can flip that switch and, uh, and navigate the world uh, without a very thoughtful, cohesive plan. Well, um, I, I, I think you got to step back. You made a comment earlier about the world's kind of bifurcating, if you will, and kind of this, uh, those that are associated with the authoritarian regimes of the world and yep. those with more of the democratic regimes of the world, right? Yep. And if you think about for the last 35, 40 years, globally, we've gone through this massive process of outsourcing, uh, outsourcing, right? Offshoring. And so the, the theory was, is every country has some competitive advantage. They can produce a good or service cheaper than anybody else. Yep. And therefore we should let them produce that good or service. And it created this massive 
interconnected, globalized world. And, and it all worked great until, until it, it didn't. didn't. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and so I think, you know, what, we, what we've now realized is China has, the, has the, the manufacturing capacity. First of all, they've locked up so many of the key inputs into the, the, the minerals and, and the manufacturing capacity for everything associated with wind, solar, and batteries, right? And Russia, Europe basically outsourced all of its, or a good chunk of its oil and gas supply to Russia. Mm-hmm. And now all of a sudden you have these two authoritarian countries that aren't wanting to play by the same set of rules that they played for by 30 years. And so I think what we're realizing uh, as, as a Western world, European, US, and other, you know, our key allies around the world, South Korea, Japan, Australia, is that's just not going to work. This new world order is not going to work. And, 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 and if you really look at it, um, offshoring really kind of globalization really kind of peaked in, in, in 08. I mean, if you go and look at lots mm-hmm. of different ways of measuring it, mm-hmm. it didn't start declining rapidly, but it, but it really peaked in 08. And, and it's kind of stayed relatively flat to down a little bit. But, but I think what you're going to see, Kyle, at least in our, from our perspective, is there's, there's national security issues at hand, right? There's, there's, economic issues, just financial uh, economic issues at hand. There's food security issues at hand. So there's all these issues that as a Western world, we're going to have to realize that we can no longer depend on this globalized marketplace. We, we're going to have to re-onshore, especially anything that's critical. Yeah. Um, and, and, and I actually think that's going to be an amazing boom for the U.S. though, right? Because we have, we have really, we have gutted the heart of what I would kind of call the the uh, middle-income American, right, the middle class, right. by by exporting tens of millions of manufacturing jobs to China, to China and other Asian countries. Yeah. Um, and I think over the next decade, as we work to secure all these different key industries, uh, we're going to be bringing a lot of those jobs, and those are very good-paying jobs, right? And because of some of our core competitive advantages, like our cheap fossil fuels, mm-hmm. we're going to be able to pay good wages to mm-hmm. those industries as we bring those industries back to America. Yeah. We wouldn't be able to do that. Europe can't do that, right? That's right. We can. That's a very big distinction that, that a lot of people don't appreciate. That's right. And you know, you... You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N ads.com. We're, we're connecting these dots that you and I set out to connect earlier today. And it's it, the way that the world is so interconnected and how it's energy is one of the vital fundamental building blocks of the world. I don't think a lot. Uh, I don't think a lot of people understand that if you don't have a cohesive, long-term, thoughtful energy transition policy, that it could end up starving children mm. in emerging economies and really dis- disproportionately affecting the poor in our own country. Right. And and so let's unpack that really quickly because we see today the UN's own food price index is up over 60% in, in a one-year time frame, 60%. Right. We've gone through, if you remember some, some of the big, uh, let's just say, momentous occasions in, in history, in the near history, we had Tiananmen, Tiananmen Square massacre where the Chinese uh, massacred tens of thousands of their own students. 
in Tiananmen Square. And that uprising was about food pricing and food availability, amongst a few other things, but that was the primary reason. We had the Arab Spring uh, that was kicked off by you know, a street vendor lighting himself on fire because food pricing and food availability. Right. So now we've got higher oil prices, higher natural gas prices, which give you higher fertilizer prices, mm-hmm. which give you higher equipment prices, right. which cause a problem with food. Well, when you think about that chain and you talked about national security, where are we? Are we to a point where we actually need to be thinking about national security right now? Oh, I think we should have been thinking about it a long time ago. So absolutely we are. Agreed. And again, in the U.S., we're in a much different position than really any other large Western. I mean, there's a few countries around the world, like Norway, for example, that's energy self-sufficient, right? But uh, absolutely we're in a position. It's, it's, we're way past the point of thinking about national security. But let me pick up on the food, food topic because this, this is, you know, this is a really important another point that I think a lot of people miss is um, if you think about the three largest expenditures for, for the average American or European household, right, mm-hmm. especially for middle income and lower income families, uh, typically number one is going to be their housing for mm-hmm. whatever rent. Um, and then number two and three in kind of various order would be uh, food. And in an energy, yep. right, right. So they're heating, and they have no discretionary home, income, and they have no discretionary income. And your point on foods up sixty percent of the last couple of years. Um, last one year, it, energy is up meaningfully more than that, mm-hmm. right? Um, and with the Fed raising interest rates, obviously there's a you know as interest rates go up, uh, uh, that's going to make uh, mortgages more expensive, and people will be able to afford le- less of a home. And mm-hmm. if they've got adjustable rate mortgages, which a lot of people did, mm-hmm. um, those when those reset, they're going to be resetting at meaningfully higher interest rates. Mm-hmm. Um, so really, on all fronts, and if you go look at just you know rent rates, if you go you know you look at any any kind of real estate like housing cost mm-hmm. throughout every major city in the United States, they're up, you know, 20, 25% a year for the last couple of years. So yeah. everything that the average American uses is up anywhere from 50, 60% to a couple of hundred percent. Yeah, we're kind of, we're over kind the of last the, couple of years. You're right. We're, we're kind of in the perfect storm. We had, we had the disease that emanated out of China that took right. over the world, COVID, and our response from our central bank and the central banks of the world was to flood the world with 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 money. Right. We printed forty percent more money than was in existence before COVID, and um, so we had a we had a monetary. I'm a monetarist at heart, mm-hmm. so we had a monetary inflation. But then now that's being coupled with a thoughtless or a lack of any kind of true energy transition policy. Right. And seven years of underinvestment or eight years of underinvestment now uh, is leading us to a place where all of a sudden we're getting to. We're getting above Arab Spring prices, mm-hmm. or, and we haven't even seen next year's food costs yet. Right. Right. Uh, the fertilizer prices have only doubled and tripled in the last 12 months, so next year's crop is going to be really expensive. Yes. And so there's this moment in time where the world's going to have a national security problem because of, one, too much money printing, but two, no energy policy. Right. One other thing on food, and don't forget, Ukraine was a huge exporter of a number of different foods, right? They're one of the largest wheat producers and exporters in the world. So is Russia, by the way. Um, So there's just a whole nother, you look at the supply that's being taken off the market, and that's going to, I think, even further, you know, exacerbate the issue of food prices going To the poor countries of the world, you have uh, heating oil, or not heating oil, uh, cooking oil. Cooking oil prices are skyrocketing with everything else. 
all the inputs are, are yes. going up much faster than is being reported by the government. Right. Uh, but I think we're, we're on the front end of, of some of those really large movements. Let's transition into the desire for a ESG-focused world by the NGOs and the, and the people that really want this. We all want it. But let's talk about the reality. You and your firm have done some of the most groundbreaking work, some of the most amazing things that I've ever seen. And I read everything I can read from everyone that, that uh, I, I subscribe to and, and work with um, on the extractive industries necessary to produce an electric vehicle, necessary mm -hmm. to produce a solar panel, necessary to produce a, a onshore, offshore wind turbine. Talk to us about um, what, can it be done? Can, can the 2030 plan of the world, can the next eight-year plan be executed? Can we get anywhere close? Can it be done? Uh, everything no, can, can it be, be done, done in the time yeah, frame at, necessary at, to at get a, it done? At a, at a price and in a, in a, in a time frame. Um, I think it's going to be very difficult, Kyle. Um, I, I think... That's being generous. I, I think, yeah, well, look, we have very noble goals, as I think, as a Western world, right? And I think, uh, rightfully so, we're very focused on climate. Mm -hmm. um, I think rightfully so. We're very focused on social issues around mm -hmm. the world. Mm -hmm. um, and so we, we just have to realize that everything has a cost, right? You can't have everything. It, it, there's trade-offs in the world. Mm -hmm. And and so um, can, the, can it be accomplished? I personally, I think it's probably the, the, the goals we have for 2030 won't, especially now that the whole Russia-Ukraine situation is what it is. I think it's going to be very, very difficult um, because when you go and you look at the, uh, the, the, the minerals, right? The, the copper, the, um, the lithium, you know, you're the, all the, we're, we're moving from internal combustion engine cars to electric vehicles. Well, they use about five to six times more minerals mm -hmm. than an internal combustion engine car uses. Mm -hmm. Similarly, when you go from producing power from wind and solar, which is what we're moving towards today, as opposed to coal or natural gas, same thing. It's about five to six times more um, of, of these key mineral inputs, right? Yeah. So we're going to have to increase the, 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 the mining capacity these things by a lot. Also, the amount of steel and concrete, right? If you go look at, say, the next 30 years, the U.S. or the world has got to increase its production capacity for concrete and steel by 20 to 30-fold. Just I mean, say that again. <laughs> 20 to 30 times. Right. What it is today, today if we are to hit those targets. 2030 targets. Globally. Yeah. And this isn't right. just one region. Right. This is the whole globe. Right. Will, that's going to happen on the 12th it, of never. It, it's, 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 it's a huge, and, and what you got to appreciate is there's a couple things that complicate this, right? Mm -hmm. If you go look at a lot of the key uh, minerals that, that, are, that go into electric vehicle batteries. Yeah, and we're, we're going uh, to show this uh, on, we're going to publish some of your charts okay. here in this talk. And so we're going to, we're going to talk about this one that shows graphite and copper, yep. uh, silicon, manganese, uranium, chromium, all of those things. Right. You, the work that you've done is unbelievable. Well, and, and you know, what's amazing is depending on what mineral it is, something like copper probably have to double or maybe triple the world's productive capacity. Other things like uh, lithium, you know, 18 to 20 times increase. Nickel. At, at nickel, like 11 times increase. Right. And so you look at that. And so on one hand, if you look at any extractive industry in the world, and, and clearly all those metals and minerals are one, but oil is one, gas is one, coal is one. Yeah. No extractive industry 
has ever been able to double, much less triple, quadruple, quintuple in a decade. Why? Because most of these projects just, they're, they're massive projects. They take mm-hmm. five to eight years to, to put a mine in. That's after you clear all the environmental, you know, if it's in a country that actually has environmental laws. And if not, <laughs> it's not going to be very ESG friendly, right? And that's another whole nother set of issues that people have to appreciate when I say there's trade-offs. You know, yeah. a lot of the inputs that go into, while wind and solar itself in, it, when it, in its final form does not produce, you know, emissions, all of the, the mining, the, the energy that's used in the mining, the, the destruction to the environment that goes into mining all the cobalt and the, the child lithium. Labor. It's the child labor. And, and you know, the, the social issues are huge. And that's, for example, one reason like right now in the U.S., in 2022, we were targeting 22 to 25 um, gigawatts of solar installation this year, which would have been an all-time record of wind and solar combined and we're going to do that much just in solar this year. That's how much solar is ramping up. We'll be lucky if we probably get six to seven gigawatts installed for one simple reason. You know, over two-thirds of all the global manufacturing capacity for solar panels is in China. The U.S. is no longer allowing us to import those unless we can prove that the you know, silicon that was used to make the panels was, you know, not had any kind of forced labor. And there's, that's very hard to do today. Um, and especially, a whole, especially with China committing genocide and crimes against humanity in Xinjiang, it's really hard to prove that they're not using forced labor to produce these things. Well, and, and, and I think that the issue is, 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 is while you might have a very noble eagle, environmental goal, you may be taking a massive step back on the social side or on the governance side, right? And mm-hmm. so that's why I say there's all these trade-offs and, and it's both in the, in the raw supply of, of all these minerals, mm-hmm. um, but also in the manufacturing capacity. So China, you know, was very forward thinking many, many years ago. They, they, they kind of saw a lot of these things coming. You know, they've got these five-year, hundred, really hundred-year plans and, mm-hmm. and they think very long-term. And they started going up around the world 10, 15 years ago and locking up all these key minerals. And they, mm-hmm. the government started plowing tens and hundreds of billions of dollars into these state-owned enterprises. Mm-hmm. And people talk about how cheap you can buy panels from in China. Well, yeah, it's because the government has massively subsidized it and they use very cheap labor, right? And so we're going to- Sometimes gonna, free labor. We're grappling with that as the West now. Mm-hmm. It's It's- do you want the clean energy? Okay, if, mm-hmm. if you want it tomorrow, you're gonna be buying those panels from China, mm-hmm. okay? Or we're gonna re-onshore all that and it's gonna take a decade. Mm-hmm. And then we also gotta worry about the supply of these minerals and China controls, China and Russia and, and a, a, an assortment of other kind of authoritarian countries control a big chunk of the supply of many of these key minerals. Right, and, so and, the and point, we're gonna sow that chart. Okay. Yeah. Well, I, and I think that's the thing we step back in. And like I said in my opening was, we're one of the largest developers of wind and solar and, and, and battery storage in North America. We are huge believers that, quite frankly, we need to do everything we can, right, from an yep. environmental standpoint to have as much uh, clean energy as we can globally. Mm-hmm. Um, but there, we have to also realize there are very immutable laws in place here that it's like, you know, whether you like gravity or not, you know, you're not going to change it quickly, right? Exactly you're probably right. not going to ever change it. This is this is one of the things we can change it, but it's going to take decades to mm-hmm. re-onshore manufacturing re- and, and, and secure supplies of these minerals, some of which the U.S. does not even have or has very little of. Right. So we're still going to have to have allies out there that we trust. When I just look at a basic identity, you know, you say that it's going to be difficult to hit the targets. Yes. 
But if you listen to everything you just said, it's going to be impossible to hit the targets. And I, and I realize you need to be judicious in, 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 in your answers. But if the global extractive capacity of graphite has to go up 400%, right. and it's never gone up more than 100% in the history of the world in a 10-year period, then the 2030 targets are not going to be hit. And I use graphite as an example. Yep. Then you say copper, silicon, manganese, chromium, nickel, all of those things that go into those wind turbines, all of those things right. that go into those electric vehicles. Um, if you just look at the, I have to call it a pipe dream. The pipe dream that's on the table today is something where we really want to be, and it's a noble, right. it's, a, it's a noble quest. Yeah. There is no chance in hell that we come anywhere near that. So the point I'm trying to make is, you make the point by showing not only the historical impossibility and the gravitational aspects of the reality of n not being able to mobilize enough people, enough assets, enough focus to get those minerals out of the ground. But um, at the same time, you have societal and, and governance issues on top of just pure factual, we can't get enough of that stuff yeah. out of the ground, yeah. all working against, against this well, target. And, and, and the other thing, Kyle, we haven't even touched on it yet, but is is once you create all this clean electricity, let's just say it is even possible, there's, there's a whole other set of issues that revolve around transmission mm. that we haven't even talked about. If we're going to electrify everything from the car to, you know, you name it, then we're going to have to transport that electricity around. And and the problem is, is and, and I can say this because we're in, in the space in a big way, is we face way more opposition from environmentalists that don't want us to build wind and solar facilities. First of all, the facilities, and even more from those that don't want us to build high voltage transmission lines. Mm -hmm. And without, without building the facilities, for example, in Europe, it takes us seven to nine years to get a wind or solar project permitted. Now they're Set talking right. about bringing those prices down. In the US, three to four years, depending on the, the area. But even if we can get it built, we still gotta transport the electricity. Our system is so antiquated in the West, in the West being U Europe, U.S., mm. it's so antiquated. We do not have, you know, the, 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 many of these lines are, you know, 60, 70, 80 years old. Oh, right, right. Um, and we don't have enough of them. And, and so as, as more and more things get electrified, the pull on that system is going to only increase and it's going to make it much more. You think about what happened in Texas, you know, hurricane or a uh, winter storm Uri a, a year, a little over a year the ago. The ice apocalypse. The ice apocalypse. Um, different issue. But my point is, is what you got to be careful of is you could have, you know, grid overload. Yeah. And and so we, we, um, we, we also have to fix in this country the... Um, we're going to have to figure out how to get infrastructure built because mm -hmm. right now, you know, the the the, the analogy would be is what we got to do in the in the in the infrastructure side of the business to make this whole electric economy happen mm -hmm. is analogous to creating the U.S. highway system that we did, you know, uh, uh, starting a hundred years ago. Yeah. And what I would say is today, Kyle, if we had to do the U.S. highway system today in America, it wouldn't get it wouldn't happen. Mm -hmm. There's too much opposition to it. Mm -hmm. You know, there's just anti-development. Anti it's not really even anti-oil and gas. It's really anti-development. Right. So the good news about that is I think from, from my contacts within the Biden administration, the people that functionally matter, and you, you and yep. I have met some of these people right. together, um, what they learned from the Trump administration, if you could actually say that publicly, mm -hmm. uh, is when Trump wanted to build the wall, he used national security as the preemption right. to use eminent domain. Yes. So um, 
there's a great chance that the Biden administration just says, these power lines, these transmission lines that you speak of, yeah. they need to go from the places where alternative energy is, is primarily created, which call it Texas Panhandle in Oklahoma. They need to get all the way to Tennessee, to the Tennessee Valley Authority and up the East Coast. Mm -hmm. And they need to get across the Rockies to the West Coast. If Biden uses the uh, national security preemption, those lines can get permitted and built. No, I, and, think, I and, think it's fair. And I think, to your point, it has to happen that way. It needs to happen. Because uh, that takes all the local environmental challenges out of court. Right. Look, we're environmentalists. I run an environmentally driven private equity firm. And it's a necessary evil. It yes. has to happen yes. for our country's national security. Right. So this is the balance you're talking about. Right. We must have a balance in our approach. Um, and again, when, when our audience sees the charts that you put together on the various extractive minerals, then the next chart that shows where those minerals are located around the world, red equals bad, blue equals good, um, they're pretty shocking. Uh, so when I put all of that together, basically what I'm saying is we need to come up with a plan as a country that actually makes sense, that brings logic, science, and long-term planning in. Yes. And, and it doesn't need to change every four years or every eight years for that matter. Right. And again, it transcends presidencies, it transcends administrations in the EPA and all the different places. We must have these plans mm -hmm. that are longer-term plans. Right. Uh, and I think, I think you're one of the people uh, that everyone should be listening to because you're one of the largest alternative players in the world. You're one of the largest uh, hydrocarbon players in the world. And um, I believe you've made your money and uh, you do things for the better part mm -hmm. of uh, society, first our own society and then the societies of the world. And we're sitting here talking today and there, there isn't a plan, right. which, is, which is what got me to fly to Houston and talk <laughs> about this thing today it, because it drives me crazy. Uh, Will, I know we've had a long talk here. We could talk for hours, but if you were president of the United States today, what, what would you do? Give me just a quick five or six things that you'd do in the short term to alleviate some of the bottlenecks that exist and potential shortages that we might have. And then medium and long term, after our whole discussion and everything you think about every day, what would you do to put together a plan that actually works? Mm. Well, that's that's a big question. Yeah. Um, you know, I think in the short term, there's some there's some obvious things, right? I mean, we do have we have a lot of. Um, I, I think first thing you have to recognize is the world's going to use whatever amount of energy it's going to use, right? The the question is is how ESG friendly is that energy, right? And right. And, and and you got to acknowledge the U.S. produces the most ESG friendly oil, gas, and quite frankly, coal in the world. So one of the things I think we have to do is we have to unleash as much. U.S. energy production as possible. Well, so there's some obvious things. We need some pipelines built, things like Keystone XL. There's DAPL that's got getting hung up. There's Mountain Valley uh, Express, uh, which is a ga big gas pipeline in the, in the East Coast. Um, so there's some, there's some obvious things like that. Um, you know, I, honestly, people make a big to-do about federal leasehold. I don't really care. Less than 5% of the production comes from federal leasehold. we got plenty of private leasehold in the country. Um, I do think there's some things like, you know, repealing the Jones Act, um, which would allow us to move uh, commodities around. Um, and, and that actually affects both the oil and gas, but also the, the, the wind uh, business, especially offshore wind. You know, being able to use 
non-U.S. flag vessels to to do some of that that work. I mean, it's amazing, um, you know, the the, the uh, inconsistencies in pricing that 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 creates. It's a very very, in my opinion, very antiquated law. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, but but there's you know in, in the immediate term. Um, there's really only a handful of things that we can do to really m- move the needle, and that would be right. to increase U.S. supply as much as possible. Um, but I think I think we've got to look. I think our friends in Europe need us. They're counting on us to supply the gas that they need for however long it is they use it. We're 10, 15, 20, 30 years. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, I think we've got to you know green light. You know, there's six or seven uh, LNG export terminals that are on the you know looking to get uh, FERC Approved. permits, and, and yep. so we need we I can, we can do that. Um, but then I also think we need to look at things like nuclear again, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think th- these next generation nuclear reactors are much safe. You know, they, first of all, there's been very few people in the world that have ever died because of a nuclear accident. It's it's more of a, a it's it's a it's a big fear people have. It's not really a fear based in reality. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you had you know, Three Mile in the U.S., Fukushima in Japan, and Chernobyl in in and actually Ukraine. Um, and I think it's un- it's unfortunately it's turned the world against nu- nuclear is the it's the densest form of energy in the world. Mm-hmm. Okay, way more dense than coal or natural gas, which are the second, third most dense, um, and it's massively more dense than than wind or solar. Uh, but it's also the cleanest form of energy in the world, right? And has no emissions. And, uh, and and when you look at the full life cycle of it, it's cleaner than than, than wind and solar. Yeah. Um, so we we have got to make nuclear a centerpiece of of our energy supply again. Um, and then I think we have to. Uh, we have to look at and, and and Kyle, you've known me for a long time. You know I am a, you know, government stay out of you know don't don't interfere type of person. We both are. But I think in this case, because of the national security issues, because of the the massive size of the problem, and because of the the number of lives that it, it affects, both from national security to food to quite frankly just well being. I mean, being able to put food on the table and and you know clothe and, and house your your children. Um, we've got to get serious about uh, re-onshoring all of these, these uh, both the, 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 the supply, the key, the critical inputs, mm-hmm. um, but also the manufacturing mm-hmm. back to America. And, 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 and that's going to require some form of, of government um, engagement in that, probably in a pretty meaningful way, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, American companies have had to compete against foreign companies, in particular the Chinese, that have been massively subsidized. Okay, mm-hmm. and I'm not arguing for subsidization, but what I'm saying is the U.S. government can do a lot of things, whether they be through tax incentives, whether they be through grants. You know, there is a lot of like the DOE, for example, has a pretty active grant program. They could massively increase that, um, and we're going to have to get serious about as a as a country, we're going to have to be committed. And as you, as you said, it can't change by administration. Mm-hmm. This is not a Democratic or Republican issue. That's right. This is an issue of humanity. That's right. And, and if we don't get this right, the consequences are so dire. Mm-hmm. I really, you know, being someone that operates in this industry, I see how bad things can get, how quickly. Mm-hmm. And I understand the, 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 the massive problem. That's, this is not going to get quick, fixed quickly. And if we don't get a bipartisan solution. So first thing I would do actually is I'd reach out across the aisle. Mm-hmm. And and truly you got to get this is not a a blue state or a red state. This is not a Republican or Democrat. This mm-hmm. is a we're American citizens and we got to fix this issue. Agreed. And um so and those you're are just thinking some we, ideas. Need a, we need some sort of Marshall plan. I, yeah, exactly. I mean, I, 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 I think I, I, I think uh, Jamie Dimon actually called it, you know, a Marshall Plan for Energy, and I, I completely agree with that. I mm. think, uh, it, and it goes beyond. It's not just though thinking about 
you know, certain aspects. It goes much broader into manufacturing. It gets into food security, as you as you mentioned earlier. Yeah. Um, so when we think about nuclear, you brought that up. Imagine if if we had two commercial airliners crash and then we, and, and we protested those crashes and stopped flying commercial airliners, where would we be today? Well, it, that's, it, a, that's basically it, what happened. Actually, no, that would even be worse because less people died in Three Mile Island than died, would die in a, in a commercial airliner crash. Yeah, I mean, it was, it, the, it, it was it, the whole headline risk right, and the nuclear right. n- lack of knowledge of nuclear. Now we've got small modular nuclear. Yep. In fact, the first small modular nuclear plant in America that will be opened and, and running will be in uh, uh, Wyoming mm-hmm. in seven years. Right. Though. What I worry about is this duration mismatch, this gap. But that's it's that's so a, that's as much of a regulatory issue as anything, Kyle. I get and, it. And the, the Chinese are building, you know, the U.S. today, I think we've got 82 operational nuclear reactors. We've got more than anybody else in the world. But the Chinese have something like 50 or 60 that are on the books right now that will get built over the next kind of six to 10 years, right? Mm. And so... You can, you can massively, the cost, everybody talks about, oh, well, nuclear is so expensive. Well, first of all, different technology, right? Mm-hmm. The, the modulars, I think, can be manufactured. Much smaller. You can yep. do that probably cheaper once you get yep. up to scale. Like everything, you got to get to scale. Yep. But once you get to scale. Um, but the other thing is that the whole timing thing is, is y- yes, these big, massive, the old generation nukes take a long time to build because they are truly huge. Um, but a big part of that's also the permitting. And it's both permitting to, um, to get them built, but also these new designs, it's taking a long time, you know, mm-hmm. for the Nuclear Regulatory Commission to, to, to approve them. To green light So yeah. we need to, we just need to, I, I, I actually think that there's going to be s- several designs that will get approved over the next couple of years. I actually think yeah. there's some, some, some light, some green shoots there, if you will. Um, and I'm, I'm optimistic of that. Uh, but it's going to take the government, you know, getting, getting the courts, getting the, the regulatory system out of the way to getting make this stuff happen. Getting it getting it focused on. Yes. And you, you know what's going to focus them more than anything? Price. Yes. The price of hydrocarbons is going to is going to put them into a laser focus and maybe even a wartime thinking. Well, and the price and of they all need, things. They need like, to be thinking It's not just way. hydrocarbons, though, too, which you got to appreciate. Food. I mean, well, and, and the cost to build wind and solar is going up a lot. And that's mm. another thing people don't appreciate. They think, oh, well... There's a lot of people that are that are very focused on well we just we want all clean energy uh-huh. and so higher commodity prices are a good thing. It's like no no it's really it's much more complicated analysis than that. You know when you start looking at re-onshoring mm-hmm. and 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 re, you know putting uh, uh, solar for example solar panel manufacturing back onshore U.S. Mm-hmm. You know that can increase the cost anywhere from fifty to hundred percent right. Mm-hmm. So so these things are going to get more 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 expensive. It's not going to just be hydrocarbons. Yeah. Well, I think price is going to end up focusing everyone at hand. Yeah. At $115 crude and $8 gas, maybe we're not there yet. Um, so let's finish with bracketing predictions from mm. you. Uh, let's say in the next 12 to 24 months, assuming a world that doesn't go into war with, let's just say, China and Taiwan, it looks like China's preparing for a war to me, uh, but let's assume that doesn't happen. So let's assume 2% global GDP growth, some sort of trend line. Where will we be in the next 12 to 24 months in a bracket on crude and a bracket on natural gas domestically? And where will Europe and, and Asia end up going? Yeah. So, I, you know, I think crude's the easier one because that's more of a pretty, you know, global market. And, and you know, you got crude today, $110, $115 a barrel uh, WTI. Um, 
Look, if you if you just kind of say relatively benign world, as you said, world keeps kind of clicking along, a little bit of GDP, a couple percent of GDP growth, you could easily see oil, you know, certainly at where it is today, but I think it could easily be up into the mid hundreds, even, you know, higher hundreds. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I don't think that's far-fetched. I mean, I don't either. Uh, you go back to, if you inflation adjust, right, the, the pr- price of oil peaked, I think, about $147 a barrel in, in 08. I mean, that's going to be up in the high 180s, low 190s mm-hmm. in terms of inflation adjusted. Mm-hmm. You know, at that level, you clearly, we saw demand destruction back in, in 08. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we probably get demand destruction at that level here. Um, so, you know, do I think it's going to stay there for a prolonged period of time? N- no. Could it go there? Could it go higher? It actually could. I mean, depending if we have a major, you know, if, if you have a major supply disruption, it could go meaningfully higher than that. That's it. You asked more about kind of from, you know, demand side, yeah. but, but if you had a supply disruption, we're so tight, you could see oil go a lot higher than that. Yeah. Um, you know, gas, very different, right? I mean, it's, it's, to me, it's just shocking to think about where, Gas is selling for, I mean, $9,500 in MMBTU in Europe. I mean, on an energy equivalent basis, that is $600 a barrel. Is that right? Think about that. On a six to one energy equivalent basis, $100 gas is $600 oil. Where do you think the global economy would be if oil was $600 a barrel? But go back. I, I don't want to think look, that look, because look, I, I know who makes all the oil out right. there. And it's not friendly places. Right. So. So I think gas, so there's nothing that's going to alleviate in the short term the, the gas prices in, 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 quite frankly, I don't think Asia or Europe. Um, you're going to see elevated gas prices for, for some time under a kind of a status quo type, you know, demand market. Um, and, uh, you know, in the U.S., boy, if you'd asked me even a couple months ago, I'd have told you $8 gas, no way. <laughs> Yeah. So I think we're kind of recalibrating our own kind of view of of, of prices today. Um, you know, that said, I think one thing that's very important is is you know, irrespective of all that, is I think it's very difficult to invest based you know, predicating on those kind of. So no one's going to do that, even at today's prices. And by the way, the five-year strip on oil goes. You know, if it's 115 today, it's back into the high 60s, low 70s five years from now mm-hmm. on the Ford, the Nymex strip. Yeah. And gas similar. You know, it may be eight fifty-nine dollars an M today. But it's back into the high threes to low fours, okay, five years from now, and even mm-hmm. three years from now, I think, on gas. So so obviously, the futures market's telling us prices are going to come back a lot. Investors cannot invest based on those higher commodity prices. We don't necessarily need to at these prices. I think, mm-hmm. you know, projects make a lot of money. Um, but the, the question is, when you think about, so 850 or where yep. we are today on, yep. on Henry Hub gas, with Europe and Asia in the, in the $80, $90 range, yeah. an M, what we all expected is Europe to come down to us. And right. what, what's been happening is Europe's moving higher and we're moving higher with it. So do you expect some, do you, Not can you US. ever imagine 10 or $12 gas in America? Uh, I mean, sure, we, we had $14 gas in 08, but, yep. but, but right now we're exporting everything. Every molecule we can export, we can, we're, we're exporting, okay? okay? So until we massively increase export capacity, you, you're, you're you, US demand is still, being satisfied by the barrels that aren't getting exported. So, yep. you know, do I see gas going a lot higher? It's going to really be like, if we have a really hot summer, <laughs> no telling, right? Because our because inventories are super low. They're, well, they're, 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 I wouldn't call them super low, but, but the, the, the ability to supply the gas, if we get a really hot summer could, could get really squeezed. And again, just like electricity prices, you know, could go up into the, you know, from $50 to yep. thousands of dollars, right. gas can go up short term, very high. But I, but I think, Personally, I think gas prices are going to come back um, over the next year mm-hmm. to two years l- lower. 
Yeah. Uh, I don't. I think eight to nine dollars is too high. I think it's going to hurt demand yeah. in the U.S. And I think I think you'll see some demand destruction. Coal becomes very. You'll see a lot. Unfortunately, we've had a lot of coal to gas switching on electricity over the last five years. Mm-hmm. I think you see just just the, just the opposite. That's bad for the you know environment. So, yep. but I think there's a good chance that happens. When you look at the gas curve today, you mentioned how the Ford curve really comes down. You know, I looked at it recently and I saw that the. It's basically eight or nine bucks until you get to February of 23. Yeah. When you get to April of 2023, so less than a year from right now, it's down to five bucks. Mm-hmm. And then you get into May and June and it's in the mid fours. Right. Uh, could that be possible? Yeah, I think it could be. And, and, and the reason I do is I, I think the world's generally betting, look, th- this situation, there's a premium right now globally because, okay. of, because of the war in, in Ukraine. Okay. And I think the world's generally betting that in one capacity or another, that's going to get resolved. Um, if it doesn't, and what's going to be really interesting is, is Europe, are they going to really follow through with these, you know, they, they haven't, they're all still buying Russian gas, by the way, well, most of them are, except the ones that have been cut off. Yep. Um, and the reason is because they have to, right? Mm-hmm. And, and, and that's not going to change a whole lot over the next 12 months. Right. Um, so, you know, hopefully, look, it's not good for, it's not good for Russia longer term. It's not good for Europe longer term to have this conflict continue kind of down this current route. So, you know, who, who knows? Who knows what could happen here? But um, assuming things get resolved over the next 12 to 18 months, um, I think you could see, you know, hydrocarbon prices for both oil and gas actually pull, pull back yeah. quite a bit. I, I think my key takeaway from our many discussions that we have, and, and this one is there, is, there is a fairly large gap in time and yeah. price. Right. Uh, for anything to quote normalize, right? Um, and given the institutional pullback of investing in things like hydrocarbons, like you do, and mm-hmm. alternative energy, they're plowing money into, which you're doing a great job at as well. Um, I think this is the golden age for investing in, in hydrocarbons because I think there's a general reluctance to do it, and I yeah. think there's a misunderstanding as to how fast things could can call it reconcile or normalize, right? So um, no, I, I think that's uh, you know Kyle, if you if you look at globally, if you think about every industry, um, and you look at where stock markets, even with the pullback we've had, you still have many industries trading at very high multiples, right? Mm-hmm. Um, energy is still the cheapest, which which is an extraordinary statement, but energy is still the cheapest asset class in the world, even after all of this. You know, mm-hmm. we're still the average large cap you know energy companies trading at four and a half times next 12 months cash flow. Mm-hmm. It's extraordinary. We're, we're most of the S&P, I think the S&P median today is 13 times-ish right. or so. So at one third of what the broader market's trading at. Um, and so to your point, and, and yet returns, in, in our 25 years in business, we are generating better organic returns today on our oil and gas investments than we have ever generated. Mm-hmm. And we can lock those returns in through hedging. Yep. And so it's pretty extraordinary. And, and, and conversely, in the wind and solar space, um, the returns are horrible, mm. generally speaking. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like single-digit, mid-single-digit return on equity. Mm. Um, because the input costs are so high. Well, no, because the cost of capital is so low. And that's what I would argue is people, people, um, people think about Oh, you know, costs have come down on wind and solar, and they have. They've come down a lot. The, the input costs have come down a lot, but so is the cost of capital. And if you think about it, in any industry, 
for most industries, the single largest cost they have is their cost of capital. Mm -hmm. And and energy, oil and gas is being priced at an all-time high cost of capital. And wind and solar, it may be the cheapest cost of capital on the planet today. Mm -hmm. Okay. And so you're seeing this massive subsidization of, of wind and solar. And so the question is, is interest rates start to back up? You know, even, even low cost capital has to move with interest rates, right? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, if, if, if you're, if you're borrowing money at two and a half percent and your cost of equity is six and a half percent and you're financing something with two thirds to three quarters debt, you got a really low cost of capital, a 200 basis point or 300 basis point Advantage. move in debt yeah. can increase the cost that you have of your project by 50%, right? Mm -hmm. So that's something that I don't think a lot of people are, are, are thinking about very, yeah. very um, intelligently. And the reason that cost of capital is so low, people are willing today, institutional investors are willing to sacrifice returns for doing the right thing. Yeah. Right, they're they're plowing money into high single-digit returns, right. and they're reluctant to give money to call it very high double-digit returns. Yeah. Um, and it, and it's all, it's I wouldn't I don't want to call it virtue signaling. That's a triggering word, mm -hmm. but it it's because it's so desperately what they want yeah. to happen. Right, yeah. they want to steer these industries those ways. The, the the interesting thing is if you think about so a few years ago there we had this great statistic we shared with our LPs at our annual meeting. Yeah, I think this was at our 2020, I think it was in the decade, the 2010-2020 the decade. Um, the, the, the oil and gas industry destroyed about three, in the U.S., oh, destroyed $350 billion of capital, right? It was like 55% of all the write-downs and write-offs for the S&P 1500, okay? Mm -hmm. and, and there wasn't even a close industry number two to that. There, wasn't, there, there was no second place. It was, the oil and gas was in a league of its own. Right. Um, I think when you look at, you know, people throw around really big numbers. Okay, think about at the peak of the of, of, of the oil and gas industry, we we're spending 700, 750 billion a year. Yep. People are talking about spending three to five trillion a year globally, even higher, you know, so there's numbers come out later, but you know, this whole energy transition is gonna cost 150 to, I think McKinsey's number that came out a few months ago was 275 trillion over the next 30 years, Jeez. right? So let's just say five trillion a year for 30 years, $150 trillion. Okay, that's about seven times what the oil and gas industry was spending globally. All I can tell you is when we doubled how much we were spending in oil and gas, capital efficiency went way down. Mm -hmm. When you triple, quadruple, quintuple what you're spending on something, capital efficiency is going to go way, way, way down. Mm. And so my only point is when you go and look around the world at the people that are organizing capital to invest in the renewable and the, and the, uh, really the broader energy transition space because it's not just renewables. What I would tell you is, is there's very few investors that have more than a two or three year track record in the space because the industries, the, most new. of them, other than yep. wind and solar, are just not that old, yep. right? And you have you have a lot of funds raising money, whether whether they be your big public mutual fund companies or your big mega private equity, you know, private capital uh, uh, firms. Mm -hmm. It's so easy to raise money in that space right now. Hmm. And so they're doing it and they're, they're, they're doing it in an industry that are, that it's evolving rapidly. That is that technology is changing. There's a lot of technology risks. These are industries in some cases, there'll be one or two winners take all. Mm -hmm. It's going to be very analogous to what happened in the dot-com boom and bust. Right. 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 And, and, and then the, the investors that are actually putting the money to work, 
really don't have a background in, 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 in assessing the risks that one right. is going to take when they invest right. in these new industries yeah. and how to, they don't have the experience in how to manage those risks. They just love the story. So it's a formula for, for quite frankly, a lot of capital destruction. Mm -hmm. And what I would say is amongst a lot of our investors, and, and we've got some of the largest sovereign wealth funds, largest corporate pension funds, largest mm -hmm. state pension funds, largest endowments and foundations in the world that mm -hmm. invest with us, is the really smart money is not putting very much money into the energy transition today. They may, they may not be doing a lot of oil and gas for, for social reasons, mm -hmm. but they're also not putting a lot in the energy transition. Right. And so it's really interesting when, you, when, when, this, when this, the next chapter or two of this book is written, when we look back a decade from now, you know, I personally think that there'll be a lot more capital destroyed in the energy transition, probably multiples of what was destroyed in the shale revolution, just because the sheer law of numbers. And so yeah. I just think it's definitely a time for buyer beware. Yep. And, and, and it's, it's, while these are noble causes, you know, most institutions are being hired uh, or, or they have a fiduciary obligation under ERISA or whatever they operate under to generate returns for their constituents. Mm -hmm. Right. Well, the way that you put it, if, if you're investing large sums of money for low single digit returns, right. your margin for error is tiny. Razor Seth, thin. this is not Seth Klarman's world. Razor thin. Right? right. Uh, and if costs are out of control and moving higher, right. well then that's a recipe for disaster. And we've never had that happen until 2021, right? So if you think about it every year for the last 15 years, the, 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 the cost the, mm -hmm. of, of wind and solar has gone down. It's, it's gone down roughly right. 80 to 90%. Okay, every year period. over that time period. Yeah. And then, but over in 21 and first half of 22, it's up meaningfully. And that's something to your point on those razor thin margins. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of these of ladies deals. They were underwritten at, at a seven or 8% return on equity. On the old cost. On the old cost. They're yeah. done. Yeah. Because not only are costs now going up, the underwriting assumptions were actually, they were going to keep going down. And at whatever costs are today, when we underwrite it, we'll be able to get them for five to 7% cheaper. See. Yeah. So, so cost of money is going up. The actual CapEx cost is going up. Most of these projects that are going to get built in these next couple of years, if you've already signed the PPA, it's probably underwater. Right. Uh, with current capital cost and current CapEx cost. Fascinating. Will, thanks very much for spending the time today. I think everybody that uh, takes the time to listen to this all the way through is going gonna, is gonna to leave with a profound understanding of energy that that a lot of people don't have today. So I appreciate you doing it. No, I appreciate you having me on, Kyle. It's, right. uh, it's been fun. Thank awesome. You. Thank you. Well, a fascinating and sobering conversation there between Kyle Bass and Will Vanlo. I just want to go over some of my notes to give you the key takeaways from that discussion, as well as some updates. Now, clearly, Will paints a dire picture as it relates to global energy problems. And he says that the 2050 net zero emissions targets are just simply out of reach in his book. He says that's mainly because we don't have enough of the key minerals needed to build green technology, and the few that we do have are mainly in Russia and China. Now, since the time of this interview, we've seen two big events relating to the climate and renewables. First of all, we had that UN climate summit where delegates agreed on a deal to set up a fund to help poorer countries battling climate disasters, but they did 
little to really address why those disasters are happening. Though on the bright side, this month, U.S. researchers confirmed that they made a major breakthrough when it comes to recreating nuclear fusion, which one day could lead to limitless clean energy. Here's to hoping. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.